Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. My name is Jared Van Vorst, and I am your host for the show, as well as one of the pastors at Life Church. Thanks for joining us today. You're going to be hearing uh, another sermon from Pastor Daniel from our series, This Is Us, where he talks about one of our church codes, which is driven by new life. And he does a great job of unpacking one of the most famous Bible verses that you may have heard um, if you've grown up in church or grown up around the Bible. Uh, So I hope you enjoy that. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to make you aware of some uh, very exciting happenings at Life Church. We are in the process of hiring a brand new youth director. And our candidate, our final candidate, is coming this Wednesday. And so I want to let you know that if you have any youth from 6th through 12th grade uh, to come to Life Church uh, in person on Wednesday night from 6.30 to 7.30, and our final candidate is going to be joining us and going to be speaking uh, from the book of Mark, uh, just a, like a 10 or 12 minute message. And then the students actually go off and meet in their small groups. But it'll be an opportunity for you to meet the final candidate if you'd like to come as well. Uh, so put that on your calendar and uh, and just show up and uh, bring a mask as well. And we'd love to see you there. And uh, so without further ado, here is Pastor Daniel with This Is Us, Driven by New Life. our vision, O oh Lord. Even now when things are hard to see, even now a world that troubles our understanding of who you are and who we are to each other. Be our vision, O oh Lord. Our text this morning is found in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 verse 16. John historical account of the life and times of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Translation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved you and me that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We pray, God, as we've done so many times, that the Spirit of God will use the Word of God to reveal the Son of God, and that we will see him clearly, And that we will see each other as we ought to, not as we've been conditioned to. And that all things will be done to the glory of God. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Hello, Life Church, how are you? Oh, come on. Life Church, how are you? Do I I have to remind you that you're the 1115 folks? (laughs) I appreciate you guys. Well, for the last five weeks or so, we have been in a series called This Is Us, a series that deals with the codes of our church, our church code statements, six important statements that capture who we are as a church and as a body. Our codes declare who we are, and they drive us to who we're becoming. Our very foundational code, You Belong, declares that we are a people and a place where everyone is truly welcome. That regardless of your life story, your ethnicity, 
your political affiliations, you belong here. Be it through the saints, you belong here. Encounter Christ means that you, we are a people and a place where you can encounter the life-changing power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That whether it's through our songs, our sermons, or through the people, that you are in a place and a community that desires for you to know Jesus personally. The code statement, whatever it takes, wherever it takes us, declares that we are a people who serve at the pleasure of God and that we are ready and willing to do whatever and go wherever God leads us, even into difficult and uncomfortable conversations and experiences. Yes, for the glory of God and even for the benefit of each other. Relentless pursuit of one more means that we are a people who will relentlessly pursue you for your own good and your own growth. That we exist so that one more person can know the tenacious love of Jesus Christ. Multiply means that we are a church that's serious and sincere about the Great Commission. That we intentionally multiply and send out disciples who will in turn intentionally multiply and send out more disciples in order to positively and perpetually impact our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally today, we'll unpack our sixth code statement, that we are a people who are driven by new life. This code is the driving force behind who we are, behind everything we do. In fact, the rest of the five codes find their mandate and their meaning in this code statement. This is the essence of who we are. This is why we exist as a church. This is what drives us. Question for you. What drives you? What gives meaning to your life? Why do you exist? For us as a church, we are driven by new life. We are driven to see lives renewed and restored by the power of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the very heart of God. God desires to see people saved and lives transformed. And so that when they experience new life in him, they are not the same. Well, this brings us to our text this morning. John 3.16. Raise your hand if you know John 3.16. Amen. Arguably the best known verse in all of Scripture in all of the world. In fact, this is the first verse that I ever learned and memorized in English and in Yoruba. Now, Pastor Jared wants me to say it to you in Yoruba, and I was shy in the first service, so I'm going to go ahead and give you that this service. It says it in Yoruba, it goes like this. God, in all languages, loves us so much that he would give his only begotten son, that if we would put our faith in him, he would not perish, but have eternal life. I memorized that verse, committed it to memory, but like many other things that we memorize, many things that we commit to memory, it becomes cliche. In terms, and sometimes familiarity does truly breed contempt. We get so familiar with something that it takes some time for us to unpack what it means. It would be years later until I slowed down and unpacked what this text means. Like many things that we commit to our minds and we say often and we repeat, it loses its weight and its significance. 
this verse is no longer significant to me just because it's familiar. This verse is no longer significant to me just because it's popular and it's known by many people, Christians and non-Christians alike. This verse is memorable and important because it's at the heart of our faith. And it shows the fate of our hearts. What do I mean by that? This verse is central to the message of the Christian faith. And it reveals the consequences of what and who we believe. In fact, the famous theologian Martin Luther referred to this as the gospel in miniature. This is the mini gospel. Why? Because it captures the very heart of all of Scripture. The very heart of the message of the gospel is found in John 3.16. John 3.16, more than any other verse perhaps in all of the Bible, captures and expresses the message of the gospel more clearly and more concisely. This short verse is packed with weighty truths, truths that have changed countless lives, toppled countless empires, altered the course of humanity as we know it altogether. Every single word in this verse is significant and has implications for life now and beyond. So when we talk about John 3.16, it's important for us to understand it fully and let its truth transform who we are. Now, in order to unpack this text, in order to sort of navigate this text, I've got four observations for us to explore. You ready for them? Are you ready for them? Okay. First, we will see the initiation of salvation. Who initiates new life and salvation? Secondly, we will see the invitation to salvation. Who is invited? And then we will see the implementation of salvation. How is God's new life, how is it applied to our lives? And then lastly, we will see the implications of salvation. What's the consequences of having new life in Christ? Let's look at our text this morning. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Pause. In the first few verses, first few words alone, we see who initiates salvation. It says God so loved the world. Namely, God is the one who initiates new life. But why does God do this? Why does he save us? Why does he give us new life? Because we deserve it? Because we earned it? Well, the text is clear. He does it purely out of love. He says, God so loved. You see, salvation is not due to any merit or any worth on our end. Salvation is due to the love of God for us. This is agape love, a love that cannot be earned, a love that cannot be deserved. It's a decisive love. A love that's an act of the will, not build or founded on fickle and fleeting emotions and affections. Oh, it contains that for sure. But agape love is built out of the lover, not the love e, if you will. This is the kind of love that is built on something solid. This is what theologians refer to as God's love of benevolence. As you look at this text, you see God's love for all people, God's general goodwill and disposition for all humanity, including those who are estranged from him, even those who are living against his will. Yet and still he loves them and desires for them to know true freedom and new life in him. There are many passages in Scripture that speak about this benevolent love of God, that God demonstrates his love to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were yet enemies of God, doing everything but love God, God loved us. Perhaps one of my favorite verses is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. I'll be reading out of the Good News translation, and it says, 
But God's mercy is so abundant and his love for us is so great that while we were spiritually dead in our disobedience, he brought us to life with Christ. God's love of benevolence is displayed even among those who rebel and reject him. Those who reject him and rebel against him. And if we're honest, that's us too. At some point in our lives, we have rebelled against God. Even those of us who now claim to be Christians have walked away from God, have had moments of rebelling against and rejecting the truth of God in our lives. But yet and still, he loves us. Question for you. Have you been trying to earn and deserve God's love? Sounds like an infomercial. Have you tried, Jesus? Have you been trying to work hard to be lovable by God? Try Jesus. How's that working out for you? Many of us are part of religions and faiths that told us we had to work hard to earn the love of God. That we had to work raggedly to achieve some level of standard. I've got bad news and good news for you. Bad news is God's standards are perfect and he doesn't grade on a curve. The good news is that you don't have to work for his love. He loves you. Amen. That's a truth. Like a hamster in a hamster wheel, if you're trying to earn God's love, you will burn out. Going nowhere fast. God's love is given freely in Jesus Christ, and it's available to all people. John here writes and uses the word, the word world here. The word world here is meant to further show the depths of God's love for us, the reaches of God's love for us. He says, for God so loved the world. This is the Greek word cosmos. This is where we get the word cosmology and cosmic and cosmetics for. This is where we get those words from. In the very natural sense of this word, it means to be ordered and organized. So when a woman puts cosmetics on, she's organizing her face. She's ordering her face. Don't laugh too hard. Basic sense means to organize. It can be translated as universe, as galaxy, or as we see in our text, world. It's meant to capture all of humanity, not the world as in the orb, but all the inhabitants of humanity in there. This is a great truth. It means that God's, as far as God's concerned, there's but one race, and that is the human race. Amen. But it's also a great truth for the Jewish people who would be hearing this for the first time. You see, they had fooled themselves to believing that God only loved the Jewish race. They saw themselves better than the rest of the world. After all, they were God's chosen people, of course. Now, lest we be too quick to judge them for their self-pride, we do the same too. We tend to write stories in our heads and form narratives where we are always the hero of those stories. How many times have you been the villain in your own story? We tend to see ourselves better than the rest whether it's theologically, I know more about God's Word, so I'm better than you. Whether it's spiritually, I'm more connected to God. I spend more time with God, so I'm better than you. Whether it's morally, I haven't been through the hell you've been through. I haven't shipwrecked my faith. I haven't had the relationships and the, and the frivolous relationships that you've had, but, but I'm better than you. Whether it's intellectually, I have more degrees and more academic skills and more understanding than you, whether it's politically, my race, sorry, my, my political party is better than yours. Whether it's racially, my race is supreme to yours. 
or socioeconomically, I make more money than you, I can't be seen with you. Oh, we won't say that out loud, but there are people who will not associate with others who are marginalized because they think they're better than them. Similarly, the so-called people of God had forgotten that God's love for them was not based on any merit of their own. That God's love for them and God's love for us was not because we were worthy of it, but that he chose to love us. This is something that God will continue to remind Israel of, and God continues to remind all of us, us that before the cross we are all equal, but that he's loved us. The Old Testament is filled with many reminders to Israel to remind them that they were actually the weakest and the smallest of the nations in all of Mesopotamia, that they were not the greatest, not the best military, not the best economically, or any way that you could categorize it, that they were actually the least of the least. Yet he chose to love them and to lift them out of obscurity and make them into a great nation. And that begs the question, why God? You know what God's response to them was? I did it for my glory. But why, God? Because I felt like it. I loved you because I felt like it. Wasn't anything you did. And here's the thing. That's also bad news and good news. That means you can never earn it. That means you've never done anything to deserve God's love. But then the good news is that you would have been passed over like a child who has no basketball skills on the court. You would have been passed over like a speed dating service, and you're the only one that doesn't have anybody in front of you. You would have been passed over over and over again. Yet God said, I felt like loving you, and that settles it. That's an amen moment. That he loves us that much. That by any human standard, he should have picked a different set of people. He should have picked the Assyrians, the Persians. He could have picked the Babylonians. No, but he picked little old Israel and made them into a big nation. That's our God. God chose them because he felt like it. This is God's divine prerogative. He will choose, love, save, heal, and reveal himself to whoever he chooses, and no one can stop him because he's sovereign. Our verse this morning reminds us that God's love has always been undeserved and unmerited, and that it shouldn't produce pride, but it should produce humility and a love for all people. You see here, John uses the word love, world here to remind us and to put us in a place of awe at the vastness and the length and the breadth of God's love for all humanity. A love that transcends ethnic and racial boundaries. A love that can't be earned, bought, or bargained for. Friends, we best display the heart of God when we love people, especially people who are different from us, especially people who the world will say are not worthy of our love, especially people who've offended and even attacked us. Question for you. Do we love like God? Or do we make people earn and deserve our love? Do we have a criteria for who's worthy of our goodwill, our kindness, and even our respect as a human? Oh, no, folks. God's love is gracious to us. God's love is the origin of his new life in us. 
for that we should be thankful and grateful because, folks, if salvation was based on merit, none of us would be saved because on our best day, we still miss it. On our best day, we don't make it. But God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Love is an action. Love expresses itself in action. Love that does not express itself in action on behalf of the other person, it's not true love. Love always translates into true, tangible action. If you say you love me and you're never there when I need you, you can keep your love. Because apparently for you, love is platitudes and words. Love is there when you need them. This reveals the magnitude and the manner in which God has loved us. The first part of this verse raises and answers the question of how so and how much God has loved us. That the manner and magnitude in which God has loved us is seen in the giving of his son, his only begotten son. God the son condescends and becomes humanity. He lived an obedient life and suffered a humiliating death so that we can experience new life in God. He does this. The immortal becomes mortal. The divine becomes common. God becomes man. The incarnation and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ shows the depths of God's love for us. That he would give his only begotten son. This is an important term. It's usually misunderstood. It's a very controversial term. It carries a lot of weight with it. It carries the weight of all the Old Testament prophecies and typologies being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The only begotten son. But it's controversial because many religions have used this as a way to attack Christianity. Some have said that his only begotten son carries with it the notion that Jesus is a result of copulation, physical copulation between God and someone else, and that Jesus is a result of that. And so how can he be God when he's purely human? Such an understanding is a gross misunderstanding of what it means to be only begotten son. This is the Greek word monogenes, mono one or one of a kind, or peculiar, and gene, kind, monogenes, one of a kind. In, in, in essence, this is what the text means, that Jesus is the one of a kind, unique, special, peculiar, distinct Son of God. It means that he's all by himself. It speaks to the exclusivity of who Jesus is. And when you see Son here, it's not meant to show him as condescending to the Father or as, submiss as subjected or under the Father in a sense, but it shows his voluntary function in the Godhead to be in a submissive position in order to promote the movement of the gospel, in order to accomplish what God has set out. You see, even in the Trinity, there is submission between the Trinity that they love each other and so much so that it doesn't matter who gets the credit because God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gets the credit. What you see here is what it looks like to voluntarily submit yourself. So when we see here, we see that he is the son, the unique son. Passages such as Philippians 2 and Colossians 1 and 2, Hebrews 11 and Revelations 1 capture the essence of who Jesus is as fully God, co-eternal, co-equal, and co-existent with the Father. You see, the point of this text here is that God loved the world so much that he gave himself. What else can you give but yourself? He loved the world. God loved people so much that God gave God so people can see God and know God. The point here is that God loved us so much 
that he gave the highest gift he could give, himself. God's love for us is not vague or sentimental, but his love is tangible and costly. It cost him himself. This brings us to our second observation. Let's look at our text again. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, pause, whoever. You don't have to go to seminary to understand what that means. Whoever means what? Whoever. Talk back to me. Whoever. All people. Here we see that the God who initiates salvation and new life now invites whoever will come. He invites everybody to experience his love, his joy, his new life. This again shows the reach of God's love, that the invitation to salvation is not just for a select few, not just for the tribe of Israel, not just for the nation of Israel, not just for Judah, not just for blacks, not just for whites, not just for people in China, but for everybody, not just for people in Canton, because sometimes it's different from Detroit, not just from people in Detroit. That God's love crosses every boundary. And God extends his invitation to one and all, anyone who would come and believe. So whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your life story, God loves you. Let that encourage you out of whatever situation you find yourself. That God loves you so much that as the prodigal son comes home, the father runs to him. It shows that he's been waiting for him. That heaven has been waiting for you to show up. God loves us. God loves us so much that he's invited all of us. That whatever our background, we can come to the throne and receive grace. That we've been invited to experience God's true love that is seen in Jesus Christ. This brings us to our third observation. The implementation of salvation. Let's look at our text again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, pause, whoever believes in him. Here we see that the God who initiated our salvation and then invited us has called us to do something. How do we respond to the gracious invitation of God? He says that we are meant to respond in faith by believing. This is what we call the doctrine of sola fide. Latin word, it simply means faith alone, because we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Not faith in works, not faith in anything we've done, not faith in good conduct. Whatever you've learned in the past that told you you had to earn God's favor and earn salvation, jettison that, because Scripture is clear that all you are meant to do is put your faith where God put all your sins on Jesus Christ. That God so loved us. That he gave himself, that God moved all of heaven to give mankind himself. And all we are meant to do is trust in him. But I love how one theologian says it. While we are saved by faith alone, that faith is not alone. Accompanied with that faith is the power to live the life that God has called us to live. Folks, that's cheating if I've ever seen cheating. You got the answers to the test. The person who's given the test tells you, I got the answer. Come to me. I'm the answer. This is obedient trust. We are saved by entrusting ourselves unto Christ. 
and relying on his finished work and not attempting to do what we can't do only to get where we can't get, but to accept freely the gift of salvation. You see, biblical faith is not merely a mental assent or a mental acknowledgement of God. Biblical faith has to do with worshipful obedience in every aspect of our life. Is he Lord on Monday and not through the week? Is he Lord on Sunday and you forget him through the week? Is he Lord in your marriage but not at work? Is he Lord at work but not while you're driving in the car and somebody crosses you over and you flip them the bird? Just me? And by the bird, I mean the Holy Spirit. It's a euphemism for the Holy Spirit. This is how God has chosen to implement his great gift and grace to us. He has asked us to believe, and it's to our benefit. Because if we had to work for it, God's standard is perfection. And it's a standard that we cannot achieve. But in love, Jesus lived a perfect life that we could not. And so that those of us who put our faith in him are now beneficiaries of his perfect life. He takes our sin so we can experience his righteousness. He takes our mess so we can have relationship with God. He takes all of our funk and makes it into a sweet aroma before God. He does this all by himself. If we believe in him, and we are beneficiaries of what he's done. He took on our sins and paid our consequences. All of the actions we did against God, against our fellow human being, are paid for on the cross. Question for you. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you responded with faith to this great gift that God has given us? If not, why not? What are you waiting for? Life has proven to you that you're not perfect. That if there was a God who was perfect, you and I would fail all the time. And if you have put your faith in him, have you really walked into what that fully means? For some of us as Christians, we have barely scratched the surface of what it means to know that we have within us the very spirit that gave life to Christ. Let that sit on your spirit for a second. That the very spirit that gave life to Jesus, that resurrected Christ, lives in you, Christian. The weight of what we've, re we've received in Christ, it will take us an eternity to figure it out. That God condescended and became man so that we can have new life in him. This brings us to our fourth and final observation. Let's look at the text again. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There are many implications to our salvation in Christ. For one, we have been delivered from the penalty of our sins. We no longer have to worry about hell and damnation and punishment and just consequences because he's, been, he's paid it all. Unto him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain, but he washed me white as snow. That's the gospel. And we've been saved from perishing. Perish, that's a word we don't use often. Do you use perish? Like your son walks across the street, hey, watch out so you don't perish. You don't use that. 
about the only time we use this where we talk about non-perishable items, right? When they tell you to donate and you donate non-perishable items. This word here, it has to do with destruction. But, but some people actually assume that what it means is that when you die, you stop living or you stop existing. This is what we call annihilationism, right? Is that when you die, you just stop existing. That's not what this means. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are eternal creatures, that we have a spirit and we will eternally live. And even when we die physically, there is yet a second death that is waiting. Perish here does not speak of non-existence. There's two destinations that we all are headed to. Some of us will spend eternity with God in perfect, joyous fellowship. All your pains and sufferings will be gone. All your physical, emotional, psychological pains will be gone. Think of that day when you stand before God and you can finally rest because you are before the maker of your soul. And he knows you perfectly and says, come unto me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Where you will finally cease from all the works you've been doing. All the rat racing that we've been doing in the world, every pain, every heartbreak, every loved one that's in Christ has died, you will see again perfectly cancer-free, drug-free, addiction-free, standing before the throne and feeling the love of God for your soul. Amen. Or you will spend eternity separate from God that the pain that you've experienced on earth pales in comparison to what you will experience when you finally get the just reward for all of your deeds that you've done and thought. I love the way an old poet Shirley Caesar used to say it. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to live in hell and then die and go to hell. I'm not going to live through this world and the pains of it and then only to go to more and more eternal pain. Those are the two destinations. For those of us who have put our faith in Christ, the former is true. We have new life in Christ. We have eternal life. We have trusted in God. We have put our faith in God, which is the only thing you can bank on, especially in this world. Eternal life is not just a new quality of life, though. Oh, it's better. It's new purposes, new passions, new perspectives. But even more than that, eternal life is eternal union with God. You get to sit with God for all eternity, learning all of who you are, knowing joy. Think about that for a second. What experience have you had in life that's been joyful fully? Got married. Joy. It's ten years you can't have a child. Got a new job, and it takes so much of you that you wish you didn't have it. You have children that you love and wanted, only to find that they are addicted to substances that's taken them from you and marred who they are to you. You're in friendships and fellowships, and you feel the pain when they divide and when they break. Is there anything in this world that we have that's permanent? Is there anything that gives us full joy but to know that in God there is perfect joy? But there's a time that we will finally experience full joy. 
I look for that day. I long for that day to rest, to know that we are with God. Those of us who have put our faith in him will begin to experience some of that joy now and will fully possess it in the future. You see, folks, this is why we exist as a church. This is why we exist as a people, so that people could know eternal life, so they could know new life in God. As I look at this verse, I can't help but see every one of those codes in it. I see God who invites all people to encounter Jesus and believe in him. That's encounter Jesus and that's you belong. I see God who displays the depths of his love by giving his only begotten son. God who pursued us tenaciously for our sake. That's a God who does whatever it takes, wherever it takes him, and relentlessly pursues one more. And because he pursued us, he's given us faith in him. He's empowered us to, new, to live new lives, lives that are contagious, lives that call other people to experience that same joy. Folks, that's multiply. And finally, I see a God who loves us so much that he selflessly gives his son. What drives a God like that? We can never say anything drives God. I can't say God is driven by new life because that means something external from God drives God. But God is self-sufficient. But God himself is new life. So God drives God. And that's what drives us. We are a church that are driven by new life because God's driven by new life because God himself is new life. Folks, this is who we are as a church. This is why we exist. Our codes declare who we are and continue to drive us to who we are becoming. We are Life Church Canton, and this is us. Amen. One action step. If you're a partner here or you're considering partnership here, I want you to assess yourself and ask the question, is this us? Is this me? You may consider looking through all the codes. Determine areas of growth that God might be calling you to grow in. Reach out to your partner care pastor. Share with him or her what God is calling you to, what God is encouraging you to lean into. Create an action plan for those things. If I can be candid for a second, for me, there are two areas specifically that God is calling me into to push in closer to. One is relentless pursuit of one more. I want to continue to stay at the table. Even if it's hard conversations about race, justice, whatever it is, I want to continue to stay at the table. Even if it's hard conversations, messy conversations about life situations because we all got mess. I want to relentlessly pursue people so they feel God's love through me, an unconditional love, a love that, yes, can judge but doesn't condemn, two different things, a love that's clear about the truth of God's word but loves you to walk out that truth. And secondly, I'm convicted to multiply. I'm convicted to save somebody some seminary student loans and share with them the little that I've learned. I'm considering, I'm really concerned about what it looks like to love someone enough to pour into them, to multiply. Those are the two areas that God's working on my heart. What about you?
What about you? Codes come and go, but they happen to be founded on the principle of God's word. And so what in God's word is God calling you to? And maybe you are here, online, in the balcony, wherever you are, and you haven't known Jesus Christ. I can give you enough reasons to trust in Jesus. I'm not interested in strong-arming anybody into heaven because someone else can strong-arm you out. But John 3.16 is good enough for me. And here's the gospel message if you are here and you're listening. For God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if you would put your faith in him, you will not perish, but you will have eternal life. And friend, if you believe that, perhaps I can pray with you. I would lead you in a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving your only son for me. Thank you, God, for giving yourself for me. Help me to see that. Help me to know that. Help me to experience eternal life. Help me to know that you have saved me and given me new life in you. And for the rest of us, let's stand for a second. If you're able to. Chances are if you are here, you believe in Jesus. I am thankful for you. I'm thankful that God saved you and that God breathed life into you. I'm thankful that God looked at the pilot light of your life and ignited it with his spirit and gave you new life in him. I want to encourage you to not let that light go out, to fan that flame, to continue to pour into yourself the good things because everything in the world is trying to take that which God has put in us out of us world is filled with distractions. But here's the promise of God. I will keep them in perfect peace whose eyes and minds are fixed on me. Fix your eyes on God. Speak to him now. Talk to him. Give you a couple of seconds to just talk. Talk to God. Have a conversation with him. For many of us, this is the first time in a long time that you've paused and spoken to God. Talk to him. Tell him whatever. A famous man once said in the Bible, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Even if you don't believe, even if you have moments of doubt, things that are questioning your faith, talk to God. He is the answer. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the songs, the saints, and the sermon. Many times, Lord, the messenger gets in the way of the message. So, Father, I pray that you would remove from our minds any frailty that has to do with the messenger. And that the message of the gospel would be heard clearly. That God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, that if we would believe in him, trust in him, 
Have faith in him. Be obedient to him. That we will not perish. That we would not have an eternity away from you receiving the just consequences of our sins. But that we would experience eternal life which begins even now. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,